I'm going to continue uh, this morning with the uh, rest of this first uh, teaching, this first discourse that the Buddha gave to the five ascetics. Um, Let's begin just by going over what we read yesterday. There are bhikkhus, two dead ends, which should not be pursued by one who has gone forth. Which two? Addiction to pleasure through indulgence in sensuality, which is low, village-like, pertaining to the unawake, undignified and unfulfilling. And addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, undignified and unfulfilling. The whittle, the whittle, whittle may, the middle way, <laughs> the middle way, because awakened to by the Tathagata, does not lead to these two dead ends, but makes for vision and knowledge, is conducive to calming, lucid understanding, awakening, and nibbana. And what bhikkhus is this middle way? It is just this eightfold path that is right vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So that's the opening section of the text. We'll see, in fact, that there are three main parts to this uh, discourse. And what we'll look at now is the next section, which introduces, um, without any transition, just jumps straight in, and it lists what are called the Four Noble Truths. And I suspect most of you um, are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. They are really considered the sort of bedrock or foundation of the Buddha's teaching. But recently, um, I came across an article published in the 1980s by a man called K.R. Norman. Now, K.R. Norman is not um, someone you'll come across on the bestseller lists, He's one of the world's foremost authorities on mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrits. <laughs> and if you don't know what a mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrit is, Prakrit um, is, uh, you have Sanskrit and Prakrit. Sanskrit means a constructed language. Prakrit means a natural language. It's connected to the word Prakriti that you find in Samkhya philosophy. And it means a a spoken language. Mid-Indo-Aryan refers to a certain group of languages spoken at a particular period historically, um, pre-modern times and post-very ancient times, of which Pali is an example. So the Pali canon is written in what's called a mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrit. It's a spoken language. The Buddha doesn't use Sanskrit. He could have done, but that was the language of the 
of the, uh, of the priesthood, the Brahmins. So he deliberately spoke in the language of the ordinary people. Now, in this particular uh, article, uh, K.R. Norman analyzes the first sermon um, from a philological point of view. In other words, he analyzes it in terms of the things like prepositions and conjunctions and case endings. It's all terribly technical. Um, not very easy to understand if you're not a philologist. And I'm not a philologist. But he comes to a rather striking conclusion. And he says the earliest form of this uh, sutta, this discourse, the first discourse, did not include the word aryang satchang, noble truth. Now that's actually rather shocking in a way because it... Um, I mean, the, the argue, I'm not, I can't go into the argumentation, but it has to do with basically uh, grammatical case endings not matching and certain other anomalies within the structure of the language itself. It strikes me as fairly convincing, and most scholars uh, accept his finding. But what it means is that in the earliest version of this very classical primary text, the key term noble truth, it's not there. In other words, the word Aryan, noble, which of course has connotations of the Aryan peoples who came into the North Gangetic Plain, and the word Satchang, truth, absent. Now, that of course begs a very big question. If those, if that term was not there, then what did that discourse look like? What might it have um, said if we remove the word noble truth? And that's what I'm going to um, explore today. Happily, um, I had had a similar suspicion myself. <laughs> So it's always very gratifying when you find that the experts agree with you, probably for very different reasons. But let's just think of this for a moment. Noble truth basically then looks as though it's added on later as a kind of polemical device to say, look, what the Buddha's teaching, what our teacher is teaching is noble and true. Now, the problem with the word, I'm going to leave aside the word noble, but the curious thing is uh, the absence of the word truth. Now, now yesterday, when we looked at the passage um, about the awakening, where the Buddha says, this Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, and so on, those who are attached to their place do not see this ground. One of the things I pointed out was that Again, the word truth is missing. The Buddha doesn't describe his awakening in terms of coming to understand the truth. And perhaps, may as well get this out of the way now too, another common doctrine that runs through the whole of Buddhism is this idea of the two truths, you know, the relative truth and the absolute truth, or sometimes it's translated more accurately 
as conventional truth and ultimate truth. And I'm sure anyone who's been involved in Buddhism in any school will have come across this. And in fact may have been told that this is the foundation for Buddhist philosophy. But when you go through all of the suttas and the discourses, the vinaya, the monastic training texts in the Pali Canon, that expression does not occur once. Completely absent. So again, it's striking, and particularly in the light of Norman's conclusion about the Four Noble Truths, is that truth is not a um, guiding idea in terms of what the Buddha taught. Now, one of the problems with um, elevating something to the status of an ultimate truth or a noble truth is that, I feel, you move into the realm, almost unavoidably, of belief. I believe that my religion is true. I believe that what this teacher said points to the truth. And yet the Buddha doesn't seem to be speaking that language at all. So what is he talking about? If truth is not actually that which he's concerned with, then what is he concerned with? It's the four what's. I mean, we could start by just suggesting it's four points. I'm going to suggest and argue as we follow through the text that it could well have been four tasks. Four tasks. I think the text, I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but that, I suspect, is what it might have been. But certainly we can just, for the time being, think of this sermon or this discourse as having uh, is built around four main points. Now, also following... Mr. Norman, uh, he also finds that the earliest um, uh, set of four points that he, he, he finds through the canon come down to these things. They come down to four words. Dukkha is the first one, which we were looking at yesterday, loosely translated as suffering, but let's just leave it as dukkha. That's point one. The second point is in Pali, is samudayang, samudayang, S-A-M-U-D-A-Y-A, samudayang, which is usually translated as origin, the origin of suffering. But in fact, that's not what it means, oddly. It actually means the arising, or what rises up. I.B. Horner translates it as the uprising, So it's dukkha, one, uprising, two. The third point is niroda, N-I-R-O-D-H-A, which means stopping or cessation. And the fourth point is uh, maga, M-A-G-G-A, which means path or way, as in eightfold path. So you have dukkha, Uprising, cessation, 
and path. And it's true, even when I was studying as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, that, that little fourfold set is frequently just given in that way. Dugal kunjung gakpa lam. So I'm going to treat this text now just with those four points. So instead of saying the noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, and the noble truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, we're just going to say suffering, uprising, cessation, and path. Okay, now what does the text sound like if we just use those four terms instead of these rather complicated, the origin of suffering, the ending of suffering, and so on. So this is how it would read. This is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. This psychophysical condition is dukkha. Psychophysical condition means, and I'll I'll explain this more in detail, it means what the Buddhists technically call the five aggregates. This is the uprising. It is craving which is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation. The traceless fading away and cessation of that craving the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path. The path with eight branches, right vision, right thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. That's that's what the text says. Admittedly with my paring it down to basics, in the light of um, this analysis of Mr. Norman. So we come to four points. Um, First of all, the point of dukkha. Secondly, the point of what rises up, which is craving. Thirdly, the cessation, which is the cessation of craving, very, very explicitly. Not the cessation of suffering, cessation of craving. And fourthly, the path, the Eightfold Path. Now, how are those four things connected? And um, why are they presented in that order? That's the next question, I think, that is, is worth asking. Let's go back to what we looked at yesterday. Yesterday when the Buddha describes his awakening, he describes it as having um, seen this ground conditioned 
arising. And then when he explains conditioned arising, he says it basically boils down to when this is, that arises. When this is not, that does not arise. So it seems, I think, quite reasonable to uh, see the first sermon as a translation of this principle of conditioned arising into a form of life. Because just by itself, conditioned arising or causality um, isn't going to take us very far. The real question is, well, how do I practice that? How does that idea, which seems to be at the very core of his understanding, how does that actually impact or make sense in my life here and now? So I think perhaps one of the reasons the Buddha hesitated to teach, as we saw, my mind inclined to inaction, not to teaching, was perhaps because he didn't quite understand how he was going to convert this this principle into a practice. That's the key. If you can't do that, then you've really got nothing to teach. And what I think the first sermon is doing is basically converting that principle of conditioned arising into a form of practice, into what people can do. So in other words, on that basis, again, the whole issue of truth doesn't really come into it. What the Buddha is concerned with is what, we, what you can do, how you can live your life in a way that makes a qualitative difference, a way in which you're not anymore just tangled up in your repetitive and compulsive behavior, but in such a way that you can live um, free from such compulsive behavior. I mean, the, the, the freedom is, is very much at the center of this. How do you free yourself from what prevents your life from flourishing along a path? And remember, the very beginning of the sermon starts with, I have found an eight, uh, a path between the extremes or the dead ends uh, of indulgence and mortification. So he introduces the path, and then he goes straight into these four points. Now, having listed the four points, again, without any transition, without explaining himself, he then goes into the next part of the text, which I'll read out. And again, I've abbreviated somewhat. In the original, it's rather cumbersome and repetitive. So I've stripped out the repetitions. Such is dukkha, he says. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is what rises up, or what uprises. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. 
It can be experienced. It has been experienced. And such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four points, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. So, what he does in this next uh, section of the uh, discourse is to um, recognize that each of these four points requires a particular kind of action. That these four points are basically four things that we can act upon and do something about. But each point requires its own specific action. Dukkha is to be fully known. Craving, which is what rises up, is to be let go of. Cessation, in other words, the stopping of that craving, is to be experienced for yourself. The word in Pali means something like seen with your own eyes. And the path, the Eightfold Path, is something to be cultivated. Literally, it means to be brought into being, to be created, to be um, developed, uh, to, be, uh, to be acted upon in such a way that it becomes a reality for you. And only when you've, as it were, co- comprehensively um, engaged in those tasks can you say that you have experienced uh, a full awakening in your life or in this world, as the Buddha says. He's talking about himself, obviously, here. So I think in order to understand this, we need to go carefully through each of these four points and the particular actions that are involved in them. So the first task of these four tasks uh, is to fully know uh, dukkha. And I think the key term is the uh, adverb of fully. I don't think it's a terribly uh, remarkable thing to say that we are born and we get old and we get sick and we die. We all know that. But do we really know it? This is the, the challenge, I think, in this uh, text, or in this teaching, really. Um, how do you fully know, really know, truly know, um, your situation in life, your existential condition, let's say? And that, I feel, is in many ways um, what our practice um, in meditation is actually all about. It's about uh, fully embracing the condition we are in. Without any hesitation, 
without any sort of qualification, without any compromise, but having the, uh, the courage perhaps um, to, 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 to consider our life uh, full on in the face. You know, what is this? As Martine introduced this morning. You see, I think the practice of Zen too, let's say this uh, question, what is this? What is this is basically what is this life we are in now? What is this experience, this, uh, what is happening uh, right now? To, to keep coming back to that question is to keep coming back uh, to the condition we are in. Again, that sounds simple on, as you explain it, but it's very difficult. I think it's very demanding, it's very challenging. And we also find, as you might have noticed, that when you start doing this, whether it's just by being more mindful, more attentive of your body, your feelings and so on, or whether you pursue this questioning of what is this, is that it, um, it provokes very often a reaction uh, to do the opposite. To, to, to drift off into daydreams and fantasies and memories of the past and plans for the future, or simply just to get lost in a rather meaningless free association of thoughts. And we keep, therefore, having to come back, as we've mentioned already, um, to come back to this. And this, if we tease that out in the language of this text is to come back to birth, sickness, aging, death. And therefore, the practice of what is this, the practice of mindfulness, is the practice of coming back to uh, an acceptance, really, um, of the condition we are in. And... I have found that uh, in, in my own uh, practice of these meditations over the years, um, that that's something that is an endless process. It's not as though one day on day five of your next retreat, you'll suddenly fully know it. Oh, good, I've done that. Now I can go on to the next point. <laughs> if only it were so easy. Uh, there's something almost infinite in this knowing in this questioning. It takes us into the very heart of the mystery of our life. You see, sometimes um, dukkha um, is presented as a problem and Buddhism is presented as a solution to the problem of suffering. And uh, at some level that sounds quite an attractive and even rather uh, appropriate interpretation of these basic teachings, that we have this problem of suffering, uh, but now, luckily, thank Buddha, we have a solution, we have an answer, we can sort it all out and we can be happy ever after in Nirvana. <laughs> but I don't think this is what is actually going on at all. Because, again, following here now, 
some ideas in existentialist philosophy. Um, life is not a problem, it's a mystery. Death is not a problem, it's a mystery. Uh, birth is not a problem, it's a mystery. This is a distinction that um, was made very clearly um, to me through reading the writings of a French philosopher called Gabriel Marcel, who's very little known and read these days. But that was one of his main insights. And he distinguishes between a problem and a mystery by recognizing that a problem, once solved, goes away. If I have a problem, let's say my car doesn't start, then I solve that problem, usually by calling the AA or getting a mechanic along who'll, who'll look into my engine and say, oh, well, your problem, mate, is you need a new carburetor. So you get a new carburetor, and lo and behold, the car starts. Problem solved, problem gone. Now, the difference with a mystery is that the more you go, the more you penetrate into a mystery, it doesn't become less mysterious. It doesn't go away. It actually becomes weirdly more mysterious. The more you look into uh, the heart of your life, um, it doesn't become, as it were, less mysterious. If anything, it becomes more so. And another distinction that Marcel makes, that I think is a very valuable one, is he says a problem is always something which is separate from you. A mystery is something which is inseparable from the person who is experiencing it. In other words, I can't separate myself from my having been born, my growing old, my being subject to sickness, and my inevitable death. These are not problems because they're not things apart from the person who's posing that question. And this, I think, although Marcel makes no mention whatsoever of Buddhism, uh, doesn't seem to know anything about it, but this is exactly what we have here in this first noble truth. We have something which is inseparable from our own existence, and the more that we apply ourselves to it through, let's say, what is this, or simply becoming more and more attentive and mindful and aware of this condition the stranger it becomes, the weirder it becomes, the more mysterious it becomes, the more sublime it becomes. So it's in this sense too, I think, that we're not talking about a practice that has uh, a beginning and an end, which again is very much how Buddhism is often presented. The beginning is ignorance and suffering and so on. The end is nibbana and enlightenment. And once you've got your nibbana and your enlightenment, then you can go home and do something else. <laughs> Here we're, I think, involved with something that is endless. And something that continuously deepens as we go through life. And again, I think it mirrors what we saw in the parable of the city, that the path leads to the city, but 
the city as the four truths, or sorry, the four points, includes as its last point the path itself. So you come back in a way, in a deeper sense to what started you out. The path leads to the path, which leads to the path. This, I think, is very congruent with Marcel's idea of mystery, something that is endlessly deepening as we go through life. But it's not just birth, sickness, aging, and death. That's, as it were, the existential, personal dimension of this first point, or this first task. Um, but it also includes what he calls uh, this panch upadana kanda dukkha, these five um, aggregates, very clumsy word in English, uh, kanda. Kanda does mean something like a, a cluster or a heap or a pile of something. It's a strange word. So what are the panch upadana kanda, the five uh, clinging clusters, we might translate them as. Again, we don't have time to go into detail. It would take a long time to sort of tease it all out point by point. But basically, the five clusters are the Buddha's way of um, sketching uh, the totality of our experience in any given moment. It starts with rupa, which means something like form. But again, unfortunately, form here also includes what we hear and what we smell and what we taste and what we touch. In other words, the entirety of our uh, sensorium, of our sensory experience, the, um, everything you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, as well as the organs of the eye and the nose and the ear and the tongue and the body. That's rupa. Vedana, the second one, feeling tone, we've already looked at. Um, So I'm not going to go into that again. But um, broadly speaking, that is everything on this spectrum from agony to ecstasy. Everything in between. Uh, In other words, our experience um, is not just a kind of neutral uh, uh, awareness of particular objects, like something we see or hear or smell, but every um, sensory experience is colored with a certain emotional tone or feeling tone. Uh, the third of the five uh, clusters is called sanya, which means perception. Again, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but basically what it means is that um, our experience uh, uh, makes sense to us. Um, we recognize um, what's going on. So when we walk into this room, for example we don't just see a bewildering array of colors and shapes and lots of incomprehensible noises, but we see a room full of people, some of whom we recognize, some of whom we don't. We know 
um, that these are windows and these are curtains and that's a Buddha image at the back of the room. We don't have to uh, sort of go through a mental computation to identify these things. We've somehow already learned to read our experience in a way that's intelligible to us. I mean, some, sometimes, of course, we do encounter something we don't recognize. And that's usually puzzling and we try to figure out what it is. But by and large, we are able to negotiate this world um, pretty well. And that's what, in a sense, you know, human development as a child, as an adolescent, is all about. We're learning how to make sense and to interpret this highly complex, rapidly moving world. And that's what the Buddhists call perception. Uh, the fourth of these five um, is called a sankhara, which is usually translated as something like mental formations, which I think is actually rather misleading. Um, sankhara is an active form. Uh, it doesn't mean formation. It means that which does the forming, literally. And I would translate that as inclinations. In other words, experience is not just something we receive passively, feels a certain way, we know what it is. But it always presents itself to us as something uh, we can do something about. As soon as we uh, find ourselves in a situation, we respond to it. We react to it. We think about it. Uh, we have something to say about it or something we want to do about it. That our experience is always um, uh, an arena of possibilities for action. That's sankhara. It's, it's our, our, our active response to the situation we find ourselves in. And then the, the fifth of these five um, so-called aggregates or clusters is vijnana, which means consciousness. In other words, we are, we're aware of the whole experience in a seamless and um, a continuous way. When we say we're conscious of our lives or conscious of this room, we are able to make sense of it in a way that it feels a certain way, that we can perceive different aspects of it, that we are engaged with it at some level, and to that extent we're conscious. So in other words, um, what's being described here is um, a sort of spectrum which extends from the external world, so-called, to our innermost responses to it. In other words, it's an attempt to describe um, what it is that uh, we are in or we are of or we are participating in at any given moment. And I think we also have to be careful and not think that these five aggregates are five discrete things. They're basically just uh, sort of a, a rule of thumb, a, a heuristic something that gives us a sort of a clue as to the different features or aspects of what, in fact, is an unbroken totality. You can't actually 
differentiate between what you hear, the birds or the rooks in the trees, and your hearing of them. There's no line that can be drawn in the fabric of experience that separates the object from the subject. It's also worth noting that the Buddha never uses terms subject and object. He doesn't start his analysis of experience by splitting it into two. You know, the mind and the body or the mind and the object. This language is completely alien to these early texts. It occurs later on as Buddhism becomes more interested in questions of epistemology and philosophy. But at this level, the Buddha is actually just sketching um, a panorama of experience, which we can, for didactic purposes, in other words, it's useful, it's helpful in terms of the task that he's interested in performing, it's useful to pass our experience in this way. So it's useful to single out feeling tone, for example, because that's the basis upon which we tend to react and get caught up in cycles of behavior. So that's why it's there. It's there for a practical purpose, not because it somehow um, is an exact description of the nature of reality. I don't think the Buddha was interested in that. Nowadays, it's what we would call a phenomenological approach. Now, all of that is included in dukkha, which again, I think, points to how dukkha cannot really be translated as suffering. I mean, dukkha is certainly one aspect of feeling tone, as we've seen, but it's quite, um, uh, it's quite inadequate um, to say that, um, that all of this, ex- what we're experiencing now, is suffering. And I, I said I'd mention a text that um, I found recently in the Sangyutta Nikaya 2260, where the Buddha is speaking to his friend Mahali, and he says, Mahali, if form, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness were exclusively dukkha, suffering, they were steeped in suffering, and if they were, and if they were not also steeped in pleasure, beings would not become enamored of them. It's a fairly obvious point, really. So in other words, the Buddha's not saying all of this is dukkha in the sense of painful. It's not. In fact, it's often deeply enjoyable and pleasurable, and that's often what creates problems. We get attached to things. And as we saw in the text I I cited yesterday, um, that the Buddha's awakening, he says, is only when he understood the delight... Uh, the tragedy, and the emancipation of experience. He's not reducing everything to dukkha. Or to pain, let's say. So that's, I think, one of the strongest arguments for not translating this word dukkha and just trying to naturalize it. So the, the first task is to fully know that. And I'm not going to say much more about that now except just to to reiterate the point that that's basically what uh, meditation practice is about. 
Um, it's, 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 a, it, it, it's to embrace, uh, to fully know, to become more attentive to, to become more present to, to become more sensitized to, to become, in a sense, more intimate with birth, sickness, aging, death, as well as this um, panorama of what we call experience. That's the first task. Now, if we understand this as the first um, step in a sequence of conditioned arising, then we can understand it as follows, that fully knowing dukkha leads to, or is the condition for, the letting go of craving. The letting go of craving is the second task, the letting go of grasping. And it follows, I sense, from our ability to embrace our condition as it is, rather than being preoccupied with getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't like. A very good example of this um, was uh, something that I heard at a conference in America a few weeks ago uh, by Jack Cornfield. Um, Jack sometimes works with inner-city gangs, and he has them come along to his Spirit Rock Meditation Center and uh, tries to you know, introduce them to ideas like mind, uh, mindfulness and <coughs> compassion and so on. As you might imagine, when these kids arrive, you know, they're, you know, they're all full of their own swagger and importance and you know, the sort of things that teenagers tend to, to be like. And that's, you know, in that frame of mind, he, Jack realizes we're not going to get very far if everybody's trying to sort of be better than the next guy. So what he has them do, um, he first of all sets up a table in the meditation room and he puts a candle on it. And then he asks the kids to go out into the, into the grounds and to pick up a stone or a pebble for every person they know who's been killed. And some of these kids, apparently, have come back into the room with a handful of stones of friends that have been knived or killed in drive-by shootings or whatever. And then the kids are invited to place the stones on the table with the candle. And as soon as they do that, the whole mood changes. It brings it brings the whole atmosphere into another pitch, a level of, of, of awareness, which is, I think, quite close to this idea of fully knowing dukkha. You come into the situation full of ego. You remind yourself of, of death, of friendships that have been interrupted in their prime, you bring to mind yourself the suffering of others and that totally transforms the atmosphere. And then you can start 
to introduce ideas like mindfulness and, and, and so on. So it's a very good example, I think, of how this recognition or this recollection of dukkha in itself leads to a falling away of a certain egoism, a certain kind of arrogance, a certain self-centeredness. It, it falls away by itself. You don't have to make a deliberate effort to, uh, to not be attached or to not feel fear. You don't push these things aside in a kind of willful way but rather you create the conditions whereby they fall away of their own accord. In other words, if we could live our lives from a much more constant awareness of our human condition of birth, sickness, aging, death, and so on, that would have a considerable impact upon how we think and feel and act and speak and everything. It would somehow give us another... um, uh, It would enable us to live from a a deeper dimension than we may normally do. And that, I feel, is what's going on here. Now, normally, if there is a normally, um, dukkha or the experience of our lives, basically, uh, tends to provoke something that rises up. This word samudaya, the rising up, uh, the the, the upheaval, in a way. Um, We had a good example of this yesterday in the discussion period, where... As you know, one becomes aware of the situation you are in, and then what rises up is the desire for a biscuit, for example. But I think we find that in, is an example of really so much of what happens when we try to be more attentive and aware and awake is that rather than being more attentive and aware and awake, something else kicks in, something rises up. The dukkha provokes um, a certain kind of grasping. Tanha literally means thirst. We translate it as craving. But again, all of these words are slightly inadequate. And that's why I think the Buddha uses this word samudaya, the rising up, the the kick-starting of a certain reaction. It's quite natural, it's quite spontaneous, it just happens. And this is how he describes that rising up. He says this is craving, it's repetitive. Again, we might have noticed that as well. It just keeps on going round and round and round. Very difficult to kick that habit. It obsessively indulges in this and that. Becomes preoccupied with specific things that we want or we don't want. And it's a craving sometimes for stimulation, it's a craving to exist, a longing to just keep the show on the road, to keep me going. And if we get depressed or whatever, it can slip into a craving for non-existence. I wish I didn't exist. I'm going to end it all. Life's terrible. 
So the, uh, the task uh, at hand here um, is trying to find a way of being in this world in which that um, uprising, that upheaval, uh, doesn't happen, or it happens less and less. Or even if it does happen, it doesn't take us with it. We don't become somehow captivated or enamoured of these thoughts or feelings that are coming up in our minds and let them run away with us. So it's not saying that you know, one suppresses or denies what is basically a natural, probably biological, response to experience, but rather that one creates a space in which you can begin more and more clearly to see that happening. You can catch that uprising um, at its inception rather than ten minutes later when the bell rings at the end of the the session. You begin to notice more and more clearly the reactivity that kicks in, kind of constantly really, with with experience. So, Strangely, this way of reading the text um, completely inverts the classical Buddhist dogma that craving is the cause of suffering. And actually it says suffering is the cause of craving. Or let's say dukkha. Craving is not the cause of dukkha. Dukkha is actually the cause of craving. Craving or grasping, this is our reaction to so much of what hap- happens all the time. It's the, it, 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 it's, the, it, it's the instinctive reaction to what's going on. And so the practice we're doing um, is, is, is not just one of trying to tinker with our habit patterns, but rather it's actually trying to get deep down into the roots of our probably biological behavior. And it's recognizing you can't just eliminate that stuff, but rather you need to somehow learn to be with it in a different way. That's the freedom we have. We have the freedom not to react. In other words, even when the reaction happens, we don't have to buy into it. We're free not to get caught up in that particular train of thought or that sort of rather obsessive emotion. We, we observe it, we recognize it, we see it going on, but we don't identify with it. We see it as just the play of the system, as it were. And that is what allows the possibility of a kind of stopping, uh, a cessation as the term is usually translated. In other words, as the Buddha says, this is cessation, the traceless fading away of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And again, I don't think this necessarily means that all of those habits of reactivity and grasping quite literally disappear. They might for certain periods of time, in certain moments. But the point is freedom and independence from them. 
That's the freedom of Nibbana. Nibbana means an ending of that pattern of reactivity in the sense that um, we're no longer caught up. We're no longer the victim, as it were, of that way of being. And that, and I'm running out of time now, and that is what opens up the possibility of another way of life, which is called the Eightfold Path. So I'm going to stop there, um, because I know Martin has interviews at this time. And we've also come to the end of our allotted period. Uh, but I'll continue with this tomorrow. Thank you.